I'm John Glazer. Today my guest is Sahar Khan. She's a research fellow here at Cato and is actually no stranger to the show. She's been on before. Sahar is an expert on South Asia and studies, among other things, state-sponsored militancy, as well as the use of private military contractors. Um, she's also an editor at Inkstick Media. Sahar, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. The Biden administration is in the process of withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Long-running predictions about a post-withdrawal increase in violence, the potential collapse of the U.S.-backed regime in Kabul, and the risk of a Taliban victory seem on the verge of fruition here. What's your general assessment of the U.S. war in Afghanistan and what we can expect in the near future as the U.S. withdraws? Well, first, thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be back here. And um, speaking about the war in Afghanistan, you know, I think it's about time that the U.S. involvement in the war ended. Now, things in Afghanistan are bad. It's not peaceful. It's not democratic. The quality of life isn't great. But from the U.S. standpoint, the question is, how is U.S. presence stabilizing Afghanistan? Is it providing security or is it making the country more insecure? Now, these are simply questions, but it's time for the United States to sort of evaluate what it wants from Afghanistan and what goals it hopes to achieve. Now, again, just analyzing, you know, the U.S. war in Afghanistan, I think for the last two decades, there were there were essentially two goals that the U.S. had set out to do. The first was to oust al-Qaeda and find Osama bin Laden. And the second was to ensure that Afghanistan is no longer a safe haven uh, for terrorists that would potentially attack the U.S. homeland. Now, these goals have been achieved. In fact, you could argue that the last goal, which was finding Osama bin Laden, was achieved in May 2011, when bin Laden was found and killed by U.S. forces in Abbottabad, Pakistan. So if all these goals have been achieved, then why is the United States still there? Now, ideally, of course, I think the idea is that the U.S. wants Afghanistan to be a democratic state. It wants Afghanistan to be an ally, especially in Central Asia slash South Asia. But, you know, democracy can't be imposed and it's not the United States job to build the nation or, or, or something like that. So as far as the war is concerned, I think, you know, there's no easy answer. Um, but I do think that, the, that, that it's, it's finally a good time for the United States to withdraw and to leave and potentially provide aid and support to Afghanistan in other ways. One thing we know about how the Biden administration is approaching this withdrawal is that it's less an indication that the war and the mission associated with it is over and more a change in tactics while holding on to some of the same objectives. Almost as soon as Biden announced the withdrawal, we saw reports about really aggressive efforts to secure basing rights in nearby countries like Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Uh, and the withdrawal from Afghanistan is really more of a repositioning of forces and assets regionally to better allow the United States to continue to use force in Afghanistan from outside the country. That's sort of a continuation of the war by other means. Um, and one of the countries the Biden administration is seeking basing access uh, in for is, uh, is Pakistan a country whose security policies you happen to be an expert in. Talk to us a little about the the efforts uh, to get a U.S. base in, in, in Pakistan and how Islamabad has responded. Well, yeah, the basing issue has, has certainly become extremely important and um, a point of, you know, uh, 
at least for the Pakistani administration and Ran Khan's administration to get some political points for the domestic population there. But yeah, the basing issues is become extremely important. Um, you know, the United States, of course, as you know, since you wrote a paper on this too, it has about 850 bases all over the world. And that's one way that the U.S. has sort of um, maintained its presence in, in, in various areas. So the base in Pakistan has been proposed. The idea behind it is that, you know, the U.S. is leaving Afghanistan, but could use the base in Pakistan as, as a way to monitor the situation in Afghanistan and potentially launch attacks or other operations covert and, and otherwise um, within, in the region by, by its base in Pakistan. Now, the Taliban, even before this was like a, a major discussion or even proposed to some extent, the Taliban basically announced to not only Pakistan, but a lot of its regional partners and, and stakeholders in, within the Afghan peace process that it, that none of these countries, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Pakistan, etc., none of these countries should allow the U.S. to open bases within their territory. And if they do allow bases to open, then the Taliban would take it as a sign that they're not really allies, that they're not really partners, and they might even take it as a a sign of war and the Taliban potentially, you know, would would react aggressively to that. So you just certainly have that element where the Taliban is paying co- close attention to the basing issue in Pakistan. But domestically within Pakistan, Imran Khan, you know, he recently wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post in which he basically said that at least while he remains prime minister, Pakistan is not going to allow a base to to open. Um, and his reasoning is there, there's several reasons he present presented. But I think one of the main reasons is that he feels that the base is kind of unnecessary already. Pakistan has participated quite widely and since the beginning in the global war on terror. Pakistan has experienced a great deal of domestic costs where thousands of people have died and thousands of people have been displaced because of counterinsurgency campaigns that Pakistan itself launched due to U.S. pressure. And this is all stuff that Pakistan feels that U.S. doesn't give it credit for. So keeping that in mind, I think Iran Khan is basically saying, look, we're not going to do this one thing that you guys want us to do. But another thing to keep in mind, at least empirically, is that the United States has used Pakistani bases to launch drones quite successfully. In fact, they did have a partnership, the CIA did, um, with with the Pakistani military on using bases. And it was only in 2011, 2012, when, when the relationship sort of became a lot more tense and started going down more of a downward spiral that Pakistan basically said, you can't use our bases anymore. But, you know, that is still an option. So Pakistan has very well equipped bases that the U.S., not only has used in the past, but potentially could continue to use if they reach an agreement. Um, it's unclear if that is something that the United States is is looking for. Um, you know, William uh, Burns, of the CIA director, director, um, you know, he recently made an unannounced visit to Islamabad to meet the chief of the Pakistani military and the head of the inner, inner services intelligence, the ISI, which is Pakistan's sort of counterpart to the CIA. And um, the U.S. Defense Secretary uh, Lloyd Austin has also made frequent calls to the Pakistani military chief about getting the country's help for future U.S. operations in Afghanistan. So I don't think the base is the only issue, but um, I think it's sort of like the Biden administration's attempt to solidify their presence in Pakistan. But Imran Khan is simply not buying it. You authored a Cato policy paper explaining why Pakistan sees it as in its interest to support various proxy militant groups. 
including some who fought in the insurgency against U.S. forces in Afghanistan. And you explain further in that paper why U.S. attempts to pressure Islamabad to stop supporting such militants is unlikely to work. Um, in that op-ed that you mentioned, Imran Khan wrote that, quote, Pakistan made a mistake by choosing between warring Afghan parties, but we have learned from that experience. We have no favorites. We'll work with any government that enjoys the confidence of the Afghan people. Does the sort of neutral posture here that he projects, is that a, is that a genuine representation of where Pakistan is, is at on this? Do, don't they still have favorites uh, with their proxy groups? Uh, have they really learned that lesson? Well, that's a that's a good point, and certainly Pakistan has played favorites with its proxy groups. It doesn't sponsor, you know, everyone, and it has a certain criteria. I think I think it helps if you're Sunni and you're Diobandi and um, you want to fight for freedom in Kashmir. You know, those are sort of good qualifiers to have if you want Pakistani support. But um, but you know, sort of you know, all all jokes aside, to to your first part of uh, the Cato paper, the paper I wrote for for Cato. I'm certainly so just a bit of a background. I wrote that paper was based on my dissertation where I had done field work in 2015, 2016, where I wanted to explore the civilian side of Pakistan's counterterrorism operations and, and strategies. Now, of course, Pakistan has a huge civil military imbalance. The military has been in power for at least half of its life, and it's the one that basically is in charge of its national security. Now, keeping that in mind, the civilian government still has a big role to play in counterterrorism. And especially since 9-11 and since Pakistan's participation in the global war on terror, countering terrorist groups and militant groups has become sort of the number one priority for Pakistan, not simply, you know, in in international arenas, but also domestically. This is the one thing that analysts and scholars, et cetera, et cetera, activists, they all talk about, right? How to make Pakistan more secure. So the civilian side has developed a large, you know, counterterrorism infrastructure where there are about like 16 to 17 anti-terrorism laws. Law enforcement agencies have been granted a great deal of leeway and power to arrest people and monitor people, detain people. Um, and certainly the Supreme Court and also other provincial courts have um, basically allowed, you know, certain um, executive overreach. Um, and Supreme Court has even, um, you know, sort of created a, a distance between the separation of powers that exists within the Pakistani constitution. So keeping all of that in mind, you know, I, I my research was I just wanted to figure out what what's the civilian side doing? And granted, it's not as powerful as a military side, but there has to be something going on that that they're, that they're doing. And what I found, I, I interviewed about um, 90 to 100 uh, people who work within the counterterrorism realm that included journalists and um, anti-terrorism court officials like prosecutors and defense lawyers and police officers and investigators who who work in the sort of counterterrorism realm. And what I found was that the Pakistan civilian institutions don't really push back on militant sponsorship. In fact, these institutions simply empower the military and intelligence communities and sometimes reinforce um, their perspective on non-state militants that they are actually you know, good for Pakistan and good for Pakistan security. And the three civilian institutions that have played a really big role in supporting militant sponsorship is the legislature, the judiciary, and the police. So that's sort of what's been going on on the civilian side, right? So there is a civil military imbalance, but the main point is that when it comes to sponsorship of militant groups, the divide between the civilian side and the military side is is not, you know, it's not that big. They're kind of 
more or less uh, on the same side. Now, um, you mentioned that Imran, you know, you you mentioned Imran Khan's op-ed and also um, said that he's kind of he kind of presenting a neutral position. You know, in my view, I don't really think Imran Khan's position is neutral. I think what he's um, trying to do is add some clarity. And also, he's trying to gather some domestic support as well. I mean, he's up for re-election in a couple of years, and he wants to make sure there's a lot of dissatisfaction with his governance. And so one way to ensure that he can get some political capital domestically is to basically go against the United States, or at least present um, a stronger front against the United States. Because again, to to sort of take a step back, you know, 20 years ago, when the Bush administration launched the global war on terror, President Bush asked then military dictator Pervez Musharraf, you know, basic famously, you know, are you with us or against us? And I don't really think, frankly, that was much of a choice. But of course, Musharraf said, that, you know, we are we are with you. So countering, there's a little bit of that too. I mean, Iran Khan kind of wants to counter this image that the that Pakistan always ends up doing what the United States wants, especially when it comes to um, counterterrorism or participation in the global war on terror. So there's certainly a, a sort of a domestic element, but also an international element as well. Well, whether or not every word in the, in the op-ed is uh, genuine or not, he does make one good point with the following line. He says, if the United States, with the most powerful military machine in history, couldn't win the war from inside Afghanistan after 20 years, how would America do it from bases in our country? And that's a pretty poignant question for the Biden administration, who, as we talked about at the top of the show, really is repositioning military assets around Afghanistan and watching closely the Taliban's progress and all this in order to basically continue the mission uh, just tactically, uh, there's been a change. Um, I mean, what do you think? Are these bases, including the one in Pakistan, really necessary for the United States? Should should we uh, continue to pretend the war is ending by announcing the withdrawal, but continuing it otherwise? <laughs> Well, you know, I don't I think um I don't think the global war is ending and you know, it might seem as if the US is is ending its war in Afghanistan and I hope that's the case, but you know, if you look a little closer, it's and especially with this whole discussion of, you know, needing bases and creating new bases, I think it's safe to say that the US might be trying to wage this war from different places rather than Afghanistan itself. And for those who who have followed my work and 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 of course you know this as well, I very rarely agree with Imran Khan <laughs> on things, but I think in this op-ed I certainly agree with this sentence, which is that if you know if if the United States couldn't win right? And while being in Afghanistan, how can they win from from outside? But I think there are a couple of things going on here. The first is, what exactly do we mean by winning? Nobody knows. Even within the United States, after fighting this war for 20 years, victory is not defined. All you have to do is is just look around DC, right? And, And ask analysts and perhaps even ask some veterans who have participated, um, who have, have toured in Afghanistan and asked them, what does victory look like? You're going to get a lot of different answers, right? And I don't think that's necess- that's not necessarily a good good place to be in. And I think the second thing that, again, is happening is that it's very unclear what the United States wants Afghanistan to be when it comes to its own interests and its own national security. I mean, certainly it wants Afghanistan to be an ally, but it it's unclear what kind of ally it could be because the United States certainly has allies that are not democratic states, right? Um, Saudi Arabia, for example, is, is a is an ally of the United States, um, and and they've done some questionable. 
things. So um, the idea becomes, well, what, what kind of Afghanistan does the United States want? And then what kind of Afghanistan does the United States want to invest in? So I, I think that there, there's a lot of sort of un, un, unclarity and ambiguity on, on U.S. policy in Afghanistan. And that's something that I think Imran Khan is is basically alluding to. And as far as the global war on terror, you know, the South Asia, or basically Pakistan, Afghanistan, it's like one theater of this war. I mean, this war has basically just, you know, expanded exponentially in, in all parts of the world. And I and I think millions of people are are suffering due to this global war on terror. And this is a, a sort of an unfortunate circumstance. Um, and, and I think Imran Khan, to the best of its ability, is trying to make sure that Pakistan is no longer like a victim in the global war on terror, or at least that's what Pakistan perce- perceives itself to be. That's not necessarily what the United States or perhaps even some of its allies think of Pakistan as, but Pakistan certainly views itself as a victim of U.S. policies in the global war on terror. Another aspect of this withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan is the military contractors that went along with the occupation. Now, this tends to fly well below the radar when we're talking about the foreign presence in the country, and I think most Americans are unaware of the scope and costs and other issues on the subject. So can you give us a sense of how the United States has been employing military contractors throughout its post-9-11 wars? Oh, yeah, sure. So contractors, you know, unless you're really paying close attention, you kind of don't really realize that they're there or how important they are. And contracting, the world of contracting is massive. And it's, you know, it's like its own sort of little (laughs) mini world. Um, But uh, just to sort of first, I think before to discussing, you know, the contractors in Afghanistan, it's it's better to understand what kind of contractors exist and especially what kind of contractors I'm referring to in my most recent research. So basically, there there are sort of non-security contractors and security contractors. My main focus is, and in this discussion as well, are, are security contractors. And there are basically nine kinds of security contractors, but I won't bore you with, with all nine. I'll just tell you the, the, the sort of five important ones um, that are important, especially in the context of Afghanistan as well. So the first one is static security. Those contractors that um, are in charge of static security, um, it basically means that these contractors are supposed to secure a particular location. And of course, the, the word static, you know, means that you are providing security in a fixed position or location. But in the context of, of private military and security contractors, they're assigned by the Department of Defense to patrol, you know, areas of high significance and value within a conflict zone. So there is always the potential of danger and of being attacked. So they have to be hyper vigilant and be able to make be able to take defensive positions very, very quickly. And some of the infrastructure that um, they're tasked with to protect are like airfields, airports, prisons, power plants, dams, oil rigs, ships, um, etc. Right. So it's a small area and, and they're sort of, you know, in charge of protecting it. The second type of contractor is called a roving, it's called roving security. And they're s- very similar to static security, but the only difference is that they actually have a vehicle attached to them. And generally, um, I think they use tanks because tanks seem like the logical choice, right, in the conflict zone. But basically, um, you know, they have a vehicle attached to them. And the idea is that they're able to patrol and secure a much larger area than their static security counterparts. Um, And the important thing of, of sort of those contractors who do roving security is that they're not only supposed to secure a certain area, but 
also help to prevent certain attacks, right? Um, and they also sometimes serve as good public information officers. So basically, like think military police, but they're not actually military police. They're like the they're they're like the military police's contractor partner. <laughs> um, the third kind of security contractor that's important in the context of Afghanistan is security management. And this is basically usually somebody who has a great deal of experience, who has perhaps served in a place like Afghanistan and Iraq, has done several tours, or is really has been high up in the military, but then has left the military. Um, and basically, this is a person who's in charge of a team. That includes all kinds of contractors, including static and roving contractors as well. The fourth kind of contractor that has been used a lot, especially in Iraq, but also to some extent in Afghanistan, is called personal security detail, which is something that I think you might be the most familiar with as well. And basically, these are contractors that are assigned to, you know, politicians um, or you know, high high profile people to provide them security, right? So additional security to what they to what they already might might have, um, and this is usually provided in a conflict zone. And I think the last kind of contractor, which is sort of the most relevant for Afghanistan, is are private investigators. And these are contractors that potentially, you know, um, engage in covert operations. They potentially partner with intelligence agencies. Um, you know, or U.S. intelligence agencies. And the idea is to give some sort of, you know, logistical and IT or, you know, whatever support that is needed. So these are sort of the, the, the five, I would say, main contractors to focus on when we think about Afghanistan. Now, the, the contractors working in Afghanistan, there are a lot of contractors working in Afghanistan. So basically, both the U.S. and Afghan governments have relied on contractors. And contractors are also a big business for the United States. So since 2002, the Pentagon has spent $107.9 billion on contracted services in Afghanistan. Um, and this is something that Bloomberg had reported on in great detail. Um, the Department of Defense currently employs more than 16,000 contractors in Afghanistan, of whom 6,147 are U.S. citizens. Now, this is more than double the remaining U.S. troops right now. So there are actually more contractors in Afghanistan right now than there are U.S. troops. And now the, the question that's arising from, you know, the reality on the ground is, well, fine, U.S. troops are supposed to withdraw by September 11, 2021, which is the date the Biden administration um, proposed. Um, what happens with the contractors? Are they supposed to withdraw as well or are they supposed to stay? That's unclear. This sort of ties into what we were discussing at the top of the show as well. The use of contractors may possibly be another way in which the mission continues, despite the withdrawal of U.S. ground forces from Afghanistan. Reportedly, nearly 20 new contracts, totaling almost a billion dollars, were signed after the Doha agreement last year that established that the United States would leave this spring. Uh, John Sopko the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, actually made what I thought to be rather startling public comments to the effect that the real inflection point in Afghanistan is not necessarily just when U.S. troops withdraw, but actually the departure of the contractors uh, on whom Afghans rely uh, in numerous uh, operational ways. Um, what did you think of that statement? You know, I think... Um I think it's troubling, frankly. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. Contractors uh, or private military and security companies are just another way for the United States to wage this global war on terror. And um, the troubling part is that, you know, I'm not a, obviously a big fan of U.S. troops being stationed in various places. 
Um, but at least with U.S. troops, you know, there's certain laws and regulations and there's, cert- there's a certain transparency that's attached to stationing troops in, in places. And, and, and that way you can also hold the U.S. armed forces accountable. For private military and security contractors, things are a little bit murkier, right? Things are a little less transparent. And then it's it's harder to hold them accountable when things go wrong. And unfortunately, a lot of things end up going wrong from simple things to like, you know, good old corruption and, and wasting resources to actually accidentally killing civilians, which is what we saw in, in Nassar Square in Iraq in 2004. So um, I think, you know, the issue really is... Um, you know, with contractors is what exactly do they mean for the global war on terror? And again, are they making things more secure and more stable or are they making things worse? And the added element, of course, is is business, right? So um, there's also, uh, you know, the story floating around that the U.S. Um, signed contracts till the till 2023. So now with the U.S. troops withdrawing from Afghanistan, it might be that uh, contractors can sue the U.S. government, right? Because they're not abiding by their contract. So I think this is kind of problematic, right? So there's certainly like a business element. You know, war is not cheap, but war also makes some people a lot of money and it's in their interest to keep waging it. And using contractors is one way to do that. The second thing is, you know, I I think a more important argument is what what are they doing? Are they really, you know, providing more security or are they actually adding to the insecurity in some of these places? And speaking of money, um, you know, I think a lot of people think of contractors, private contractors as the, the, the government is bureaucratic and inefficient. And therefore, if and when we can rely on outside private contractors, that's that's preferable. Um, a lot of people have objections to that when it comes to national defense. But if we just look at the incredible, as it's uh, often referred to, quote, waste, fraud, and abuse with regard to our presence in Afghanistan and, and the war there, a lot of it did come from contractors, did it not? It did. It did. A lot of it did come from contractors. And and some of it also came from the government, too. So th- this is not to say that, you know, things shouldn't be privatized. I'm not like anti-business over here. But at the same time, I think war is very, very different. And, you know, war and uh, basically, you know, you you end up killing and harming millions of people and also potentially harming your own interests and putting your own territory and your own people at jeopardy. So when you have those kinds of, you know, risks attached to something, I don't think, you know, using contractors is is the best way to do it. And also, you know, there's this idea that somehow using contractors will will make the United States more efficient, right, at at, at fighting war. Um, You know, I, I think that kind of argument always makes me take a step back because the United States has one of the best militaries in the world, right? If not the best military in the world. So then to argue that somehow contractors might be better than the military seems like an odd argument to me. I mean, they might, they certainly are less bureaucratic. They might do things faster, but it's not clear whether they're doing things better. Another thing, this thing, which is, I think, a, a much more important argument is that, you know, the United States over the past, you know, few decades now has become so reliant on using its military to solve its foreign policy and national security issues that now the only way we can think of solving issues is through military means. And using contractors is more or less a military mean because who who are contractors? Some of them are veterans, right? Um, 
they're they're um, ones who have served in various places uh, in, as part of you know the U.S. Marine Corps or the Army, Air Force, etc. And they're just sort of gone to the private sector. And again, again, there's no harm in going to the private sector, but I, I do I do think that it's harmful when the government starts contracting um, war to these contractors. And and the issue of, of of fraud and waste, you know, unfortunately, corruption, I, I, it's the thing that's basic. It's like a termite that's been eating up Afghanistan and has certainly been eating up some of, um, you know, U.S. practices in, in Afghanistan as well. Um, and, and again, I think anybody who studies corruption would probably agree with me and say that you can't really solve corruption by military means. So the United States has to be more creative in thinking about how to solve some of the world's problems. And I don't think using the military is is the best way to do it, and certainly not in Afghanistan anymore. You know, I continue to be really troubled about the fact that um, the Biden administration is posturing this withdrawal from Afghanistan as a sort of end to the war. And yet, if you look closely at their policies, which we've talked about today, uh, it seems like the war in Afghanistan is uh, going to continue. Um, and so, uh, 20 years on, uh, I think we need to do a little better. Uh, Sahar, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.